0: Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy to use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training.
1: The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way.
0: That's right. It's like having a Safe and Together coach in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy academy.safetogetherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. And, and we're back. And we're back. Hello. Hi, how are you?
1: I'm I'm well this morning. How are you? Good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, Ruth and David.
1: Okay. This that? is new. This we're is doing new. What just happened?
0: This is Partner with a Survivor. Who are you? I'm David Mandel. I'm a separate person. Yeah. And you are?
1: I'm Ruth, Stern. I'm Ruth Ramundo. Look, I went back to my old name. Ruth Ramundo Mandel. We're confused this morning. Yes, we says. are.
0: And this is Partner with a Survivor and uh, we've got a great guest on this show uh today dr katrina scott who is an old friend and colleague of mine mm-hmm. and we'll be getting to her in a moment mm-hmm. uh, but we are um doing this show from Tungus land as we always like to talk about and acknowledge that the Tungus people are the traditional owners of the land here and they're part of the larger algonquin language group and just acknowledge the history of colonization that is um present and, and ongoing, and ongoing <laughs> in many of the countries that that we work on: United States, Canada, mm-hmm. Australia, New Zealand, and other places. So that's just we a,
1: send our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging.
0: That's right. So, so today, you know, we've been doing recently a series of shows that really talk about, you know, interviews with with survivor practitioners. But today, we're 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 going in a different direction mm-hmm. and picking up on a theme that we've we've had on multiple shows, which is really about working with people who use violence and control, particularly around fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And we're we're going to be uh talking with Dr. Katrina Scott, the founder of the Caring Dads program or the creator of the Caring Dads program. And and I just want to just say that, you know, um over the years for me, um I came out of the men's behavior change space and that's where work is and became involved in systems change for a long time. And, um, you know, really have spent a lot of time emphasizing the need for social workers and practitioners in different spaces to be interventionists, you know, Mm -hmm. to really do accountability, to do engagement, to do work in their work. And And
1: specifically behavioral accountability.
0: Behavioral accountability in their work. And not to um, farm out everything about accountability to specialist programs. Now, at the same time specialist programs like caring dads or other men's behavior change programs and we'll talk to dr scott about some of the differences you know play a really critical role in in both helping individual people and in systems change right. and so i i kind of taken a both and kind of perspective on that so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so this is really important to me so i'm gonna um turn it you know kind of formally introduce um uh, I'm, ca- you know, I'm going to start by calling you by your title, Katrina, and say, Dr. Scott, and then we can move to informal, you know.
2: Then you can call me Katrina.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's, you know, I think it's a right, I think it's important to kind of give people due for the work that they've done. And and just um, so so, Dr. Scott is a psychologist, professor and director of the Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children at Western University in Ontario, Canada, Uh, She leads an applied research program aimed at ending violence in family relationships with a specific expertise on addressing violence perpetration in men. She has authored over 40 articles and book chapters on the development of violent relationships and the efficacy of services to male batterers, the effect of abuse and trauma on children, and on empirically and ethically sound policies for working with abuse perpetrators. And and Katrina, we will be getting back to that because I think that's a critical thing, and that the Caring Dads program. That she developed, which you can all access at caringdads.org, is currently running in in many states across Canada, as well as the US, UK, Ireland, Wales, Germany, Australia, Sweden. And um, and in recognition of her contributions to the field, Dr. Scott holds the tier one Canada research chair in ending child abuse and domestic violence. And so um, welcome Katrina to the show.
2: Thank you so much.
0: And um, And I just want to say, you know, on a personal note that Katrina and I have known each other for years and that for those of you who who listen to the list of places Caring Dads is operating in, that you might see quite an overlap with with Safer Together. Right. And and, you know, a few years ago, Katrina, you came to me and said, hey, do you know? And I didn't. Did you know that we're finding that in a lot of places you guys go within a year, they're reaching out to us and saying, hey, we're interested in Caring Dads because. We're doing safe and together and we need programming um, that really kind of is compatible with that. And honestly, there's not a lot of options out there. And I'm sure you'll speak to this about interventions around men and violence in the family that really look at, at those um, men through a fatherhood lens, Mm -hmm. which caring dads does. Mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah. So go ahead. You know, you know,
2: David, what they say is they say, you know, we see him now we see what's happening. We see the harm. What do we do about it?
1: Right. Can that, I can I just yeah, yeah. can I pause and orient us in some some truths that we know not only from research but that also we know from survivors speaking their experience because I think a lot of times what happens is the conversation about behavior change quickly shifts to how it's applied in the field and its efficacy and I would like to just say as a as a child survivor that children have stated that they want their parents to get behavioral help. That adult survivors have stated that they want their partners and their co-parents to get behavioral help. That leaning on a system that puts people in prison and severs them from their family and doesn't offer them any behavioral remediation or assistance and doesn't hold them accountable for those behaviors does not improve the state of families. In fact, it erodes it. That's the evidence. It puts financial burden on survivors. It harms kids who want to have connection with their parents, with their abusive parents, to not facilitate better parental behaviors, to not set behavioral expectations of them as parents for safe parenting. And that's a reality that I just want to land us all in. You know, some survivors may want their perpetrator to go to prison for long periods of time. And we should look at and respect their wishes because that's called partnering. But many, many survivors want their parents to behave better and to get
0: better. No. So
1: I just want to speak
0: that <laughs> you, truth. You want that baseline. I yeah. do. I yeah. do. Yeah. <clears throat>
2: And, you know, can I just say that, uh, Ruth, I really appreciate you setting that baseline. And, and I want to tell you that, you know, fundamentally my training and my background is as a child clinical psychologist. So I started this work with kids and working with kids who were um, in uh, struggling and, and traumatized and in the system because of often the behavior that their father perpetrated against their mother and sometimes against them as well. And when I looked, what I found is that, you know, nobody was actually talking to their fathers. Nobody was saying, you know, this is is the harm that you've caused. This is the things that you have to change. This is how this is working. This is the ongoing impact that you're having on your child and on your child's caregivers. In fact, what the system was often doing is blaming and making it her responsibility. So what are you doing and and how are you protecting the kids rather than really turning the lens on what he needs to do and what he needs to change? And that is such a point of connection between, you know, the work that that you do and the work that that Caring Dads does. And I think one of the reasons why um, there is this this tendency to kind of work uh, from one to another is because of that fundamental Understanding that when we're dealing with people who have used abusive behavior, when men have used abusive behavior, part of what we need to do is make him accountable, name that abusive behavior, make him accountable for changing that behavior. And that's our main goal. And that is what needs to happen to make survivors, children, and parents safe. And I just want to say, just to affirm
1: it, we all have a responsibility to name the behaviors that are harming children and adult survivors, and to set other behavioral expectations for people in order for us to truly assess who is willing to change and who is not. That is a basic fundamental action that professionals must all engage in. So, you know, I love I love your work and I would love to hear a little bit about what you saw in the industry as a gap and why you wanted to step into this space.
2: Yeah, well, I, I, I'm i happy to pick up on that. And, and, you know, I'll go back to those kids who, mm. because of the way that the system was working, the kids were continuing to have contact with their dads. And, you know, we can have some conversations as well about how we need to continue to work for the whole system to do a better job at recognizing the needs of survivors and also the risk factors um, that might mean that contact shouldn't happen. That being said, um, there are a lot of cases where, as you say, children will or want to have continued contact with their fathers there are families that that want to be able to stay together but what they really want is for things to be safe um and what i saw was a system that wasn't acting in a way that made that possible that made that expectation for the person who was behaving abusively um and so really that was it, it in its core the way we started to try to think who can start to have conversations how can we start to name this with men themselves? How can we engage men themselves in changing and in making things um, so that they're having the relationships that they want with their children and with their children's mothers?
0: You know, it's it's interesting, and I want you to describe in a moment the the actual kind of general nature of the program, Caring Dads, and what it's supposed to accomplish. But you know, going off Ruth's comment and what you were just saying, Katrina, you know, I'm I'm thinking about some recent conversations I've had with practitioners. Uh, in the in the legal sphere and they're like do these programs you know and you get this all the time I've got it three years do these programs work because you know what feels like common sense to the three of us which is everybody needs to be talking to men who are particularly but fathers about their behavior what it does to their kids and trying to promote change right and determine who can change who can't what's safe what's not safe right that's I think it's kind of for, for the three of us might be a given but there are people out there who just start from the premise "Why bother?" Right, bother throw
1: fathers away. Well, but
0: why bother? It doesn't work. They're not. They're not. There's just a. There's an idea that if you're acting that way, you 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 never can change. Or even more broadly, this is just the way men are. Mm -hmm. You know, which
1: which I would like to point out makes women eternally responsible for male (laughs) violence, and there's a very very bad strategy (laughs) for accountability and change whether or not you truly believe that because you've had personal experiences where your perpetrator never changed and you're personalizing that to professional practice and everybody else's experience, which is not okay and is not professional, (laughs) or whether because you feel the burden of the liability of trying to work with these men and then them going to their therapist And getting support for their behaviors and and excuses for their behaviors, or they go to family court and they get support and excuses for their behaviors, or their their victim calls the police and the police give them support. What we need to do is we need to bring everybody on board with the fact that it's all of our responsibility to identify behaviors which harm the well-being and safety of kids and of adult survivors, and we need to name them. And we need to say that's not acceptable because that's setting expectations. Unless you set behavioral expectations collectively, and if any professional is undermining those behavioral expectations and giving that perpetrator support for their behaviors, we are all going to be challenged to hold them accountable. It is all of our responsibility.
0: So, so yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, I'll 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 build on that. Um, and it's because We also know that there are people out there who are very good at skirting those uh, expectations. So not only it's important to uh, set those expectations and men can get support for it, they can also get support for avoiding accountability. And, you know, I think of this one story that comes to mind, a, a guy, this was a guy in the UK. Um, and we had him in as one of, uh, a as, as, helping, he eventually made it through the caring dads program, but he got referred three or four times. And at one point he described, he actually left the whole town because he didn't want to be found to actually go to the program. And in the end, he went to the program. He was like, wow, what was, what was I actually afraid of? But that's about skirting those expectations right. as well. Right. But you, you started with this question about, um, that, that, that reluctance or that, skepticism of, about whether or not it's worth um, right. engaging yeah, with exactly. others. And I want to I, I come back to that question of do the programs work? But before I do, I want to just lay out what Ruth said, which is, you know, partly what we need to do is be setting expectations. And that in and of itself is important, not only for the men, but also for the families, right? Because it says we are a system that sees abuse, which in and of itself is helpful. I think The other thing is, when we don't have those conversations, we end up blaming and putting responsibilities on moms, which Ruth also talked about. The next thing that we do um, is we forget that men go on to other families. So, in a typical Caring Dads program, one of the things we do is we ask men to talk about and to, to make a picture of all the kids that they are impacting in their life, like all the kids that they have parented. And it's not, it's very rare that we have one or two kids in the room. It's often a couple of biological children from one person, then another relationship. And maybe there's two or three kids that dad has parented that are not his biological children, but then he had a relationship and, and, and then maybe another biological child there and maybe moved on to another relationship as well. So if we have 10 men in a caring dads group, it wouldn't be unusual to have 30 or 40 or maybe even 50 children, that this man is impacting. So if we don't have a conversation now, who are we signing up for next who might be harmed by abusive behavior? And then um, we have the challenge that even in that first case, even if right now we get men out of this family, I've dealt with way too many families who at teenage, right, when kids become teenagers and things may be falling apart, what do they do? They go find their father. and then we have this situation where we have a teenager who's in some level of distress and a parent who absolutely has no capacity to um, to do anything that's going to be helpful that is probably going to be ongoingly harmful. It's probably going to cause more harm when that teenager finds that mm-hmm. father right. and then right? So so all of those reasons, and then let's get to do they work? So right. let's go to that question. Right. Right. <laughs> but
0: before you go there, because I do want you to go there. I, you know, the 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 in some sense it's to me again, this is at this point, and I've been saying this a lot with other things, like I'm tired of certain things at this point. Maybe this is the point I have in my career, you know, but I'm tired when I think of a people not understanding that fathers' choices and behaviors matter to families. And that I love that, you know, that sort of just painting of for the audience but also for those men these are how many kids you you matter to i mean you didn't say it exactly that way but these are how many kids you matter and that you can have a bad influence on them you could have a good influence on them you could but but just really that simple map of um that of families and i think we really live with a map a lot of times that all that matters is fathers as breadwinners maybe and mothers as caregivers and and that's really I think that's still a very operative map for so many people. Um, and so, yeah, and she can make it her own financially, you know, and so really he's disposable. And we we kind of write him out of the picture is what, kind of what you where we were a little bit earlier.
2: Can, can I just tell you a story yeah. about that, David? Yeah, um, yeah. Because many of the men, I, like most of the men who we have in Caring Dads, have their own histories of trauma and abuse. That's not surprising, really. No. But one of the the stories that really comes to mind to me when when you say that is a guy who was at the very beginning. We talk a little bit about what was your history, like what are you coming in with in terms of your your experience and history of being fathered. And he talks about the fact um, that he he really didn't have a father and what kind of impact that had on him. That his father had had walked out and that he had longed for that relationship and that a year ago, he had discovered that his father actually had lived two blocks away from him and had never contacted him. And, you know, just the emotion and the, the, the harm of that choice for that child who was now an adult was profound.
0: You know, it, 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 it to me, it's, again, it's one of the, it's become one of my mantras. And I, and I, Backed into it because I went into this looking at men and violence, and then I looked at systems and said, and you you said this about safe and together that safe together t- makes people see these fathers and see their importance, and and I realized that that the problem with we have with engaging violent fathers actually rests on the problem we have on seeing all fathers, yeah. And and you're not describing that dad's dad's violence, but you're describing his choice to neglect. Mm-hmm. and abandon this child mm-hmm. um and the impact that has and i think it's i think I, I and i'm you know kind of we're in the last stage of the you know the book that, I, that i'm finishing up which is called stop blaming mothers and ignoring fathers right so it's really that's the that's the title i landed on and i, I i'm just like we have to stop ignoring fathers behaviors i don't want to mm-hmm. say fathers have to be in a family i want i don't want people to interpret that and i know you don't say that or that fathers need to be there but we have to have a vision and a map of the family right. that accounts for how those fathers' choices made it harder for this kid to do this or make them forced to move if it was violence that forced them to move
1: yeah. you know we
0: have to have that map
1: well we've we've operated under this really um I would say it's a convenient assumption for men who don't want to take self responsibility for their own emotional processes or behavioral realities that men are by nature, by their biology, violent and irresponsible parents and dangerous to women and kids, Um, and that women and society or the government are in charge of putting a barrier between male violence and child well-being and, and adult females. And in reality, that is just a great gig. For male abusers who just serially perpetrate and uh, derive the benefit from their coercive control. Mm-hmm. Um, and that benefit isn't just in family contexts, because that spills over into the way that they behave in business and in power structures and the way they use those power structures to maintain that control. So I think it's really important that we land ourselves in an understanding that we don't actually have an a really clear understanding of who can change and who cannot change. And that's a product of the way that we're doing business, the way we're doing Mm -hmm. practice, the way that professionals see their own role in this environment. We have a huge gap of behavioral pattern information and how those behaviors impact kids, because we've made this assumption that male violence is not able to be contained. And we can't move forward that way socially and in our families. We need men to be responsible for their emotional processes and their behaviors. It's really just a, a, a baseline expectation we all should have.
2: So let's dive into that, Ruth. Let's dive into this question of can people change and do programs work? And I want to start with the first question because they're actually different questions. Can people change is a different question than do p- programs work? So yeah. let's look at can people change? You know, I think that one of the things that that people that I seem to continue to have the conversation about is look at longitudinal research. Look at the research on whether or not change happens in abusive behavior. And we can look at survivor voices. We can look at police data. We can look at men's data. We can look at child protection data. We know that if you follow people longitudinally after there is an incident of abuse, and that Abuse could be defined in many different ways. It could be police, it could be self-report, it could be partner report. We know that um, one half to two thirds of cases, there is no repeat abuse over a period of around two years. And the likelihood of abuse happening again goes down. Now, when I say there's no repeat abuse, what do I mean? Well, usually what we're talking about here is physically or sexually abusive behavior, but if you track emotionally and psychologically abusive behavior, that tends to decline along with physically and sexually abusive behavior. That doesn't mean that there aren't a subgroup of men who's who get really good at being manipulative and psychologically violent. That doesn't mean that they don't exist, but in general, We know that abuse can and does change, not for everybody, but for a number. The other thing we know from that longitudinal research is that there's a subgroup of guys and, you know, it varies a little bit in terms of estimates, but it's a subgroup of around, usually around 15%, sometimes 20%. So that's one in, maybe one in five for whom change doesn't happen. And these guys tend to reabuse quickly. So, you know what? They're 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 engaging in abusive behavior again within, you know, often two months. So mm-hmm. they're in our systems when they're re-engaging in abusive behavior. And these are the guys who also are more likely to get again engaged in abusive behavior and to cause a lot um, of really significant harm. So these are the guys who we need to be most worried about in terms of risk factors for lethality. Mm-hmm. So you know, when we look at just longitudinal research in general, yeah, there is some people, there, there are men who change mm-hmm. um, and there is a subgroup who don't. So well, maybe I'll stop there before I go to yeah. Yeah. Program. And, and, and but I, identifying that
1: subgroup. Right. Takes understanding their pattern of behaviors, right. and if we're not assessing for that, then how are we determining right. who is capable of change and who is really dangerous right. for child well-being and to adult survivors? And, we're not doing that well.
0: And, and I think you know, for me, you, you you speak to, and I'm I'm familiar with a lot of the similar research. I mean, I hear, you know, sort of, I'm um, you know, going back to Ed Gandolf's work, you know. You know which so you know kind of parallel stuff it was out of the US and sort of you know really sort of a subgroup that 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 really was recidivating very quickly in, in terms of either police or physical assaults but that the vast majority at four years looking backwards had not been physically violent in the last two years is based on the best we could guess survivor reports new partners you know so incident offense victims so on and so forth and police but I, I think to me it really for me for the listeners you know I want to underline that you know there is a relative consensus in the field that some people can change and then it raises the question about like ruth says who how do you monitor how do you encourage how do you put bumpers on their behavior you know um
1: how do you set expectations yeah all those things right. but just
0: as sort of i don't think to me it's sort of like it's a it's a it, it you know it, if if you're thinking in your community we don't have any programming, or we don't do any interventions with men around violence with our family, right? And let's say that means you're 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 influencing zero percent. Mm-hmm. And yes. and and so let's say you put an effort in, and out of that population, you can help change twenty five percent of those in significant ways, fifty in some ways that that are not as significant but meaningful to families, and twenty five percent that you can't change at all, right? So you get a give us a kind of a good bell curve. How can you justify not trying, in my view, when, you know, that's my view. It's settled for me. But, you know, I'm just saying this for the audience, you know, and it's, uh, you know. Go ahead, Katrina.
2: Yeah, sorry, Katrina. Well, I'm going to lean into that a little bit because the other thing that I then think we can fall into a bad thinking pattern around is the idea that you refer somebody to intervention and that's that.
1: Right. Wash your right. hands. So
2: for, for me, one of the core principles of caring dads, I'll talk about two. There's there's a number, but the, the two that I'm going to talk about are um, caring dads has to, it, like the aim of caring dads fundamentally, we're trying to benefit children and make children safer. And children's safety is integrally connected to that of their primary caregiver, often their mom. So those are two fundamental principles. So what that means is that we have to be ready to respond to the guys who don't change right. as yeah. much as we're ready to respond to the guys who do change. Right. And and that's a different way in a way of looking at intervention. Because in fact, sometimes caring dads intervention, most of the time, you know, we're really about. Let's try to make, sure. let's do everything we can to name the abusive behavior, help men connect to what they fundamentally want to be better. Because, you know, there are very few fathers that I've worked with who want to be causing harm to their kids, who want the kind of relationships that they have right now, who want the kind of disillusion that they've created in their relationship. It's not what they aimed for when they were kids, right? So, you know, lots of times we're working on that. But there are some guys for whom, you know, our conversations are about, for them and with their families and their referrers, is about here's what's not changing for you. Here's the ongoing risk that you're posing. Here's the harm that is happening. So what can we do to mitigate that harm, to put those boundaries in place, to manage that risk? And so sometimes it's really hard conversations about, you know, your kid is safer with you not in your life right now. Right. There's right. all the reasons why. Right. That's a different way of thinking about intervention. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think I think it's really it, it's an important point
1: to really drop down into understanding the expectations we are and we are not setting. And where we're where we're failing to do those behaviors and set those expectations in our own professional practice, whether you're a therapist or you are working with kids um, in child and family services, or you're a child protection worker, or you're a law enforcement officer, right? To have those basic conversations and really understand where we're landing expectation setting in a behavioral way and where we're pushing off that responsibility. And assuming that somebody else is doing that and they're doing it well. And, you know, I've taken a look at our own state's behavior change program, which is fully online Uh and is, you know, determined by completion Uh and is really not, it's, it's unsafe. A lot of behavior change programs that are run by the states, that are run by governmental organizations are unsafe. They do not measure behaviors. They do not glean behavioral pattern information. They do not tie that back to child well being and parenting. And they do not observe the changes or the non changes in those behaviors based on the reporting of the adult and child survivor. So, how does Caring Dads kind of wrap around the experience of the child, the ongoing experience of the child and the adult survivor to measure whether or not those patterns of behaviors are shifting and changing.
2: Yeah. And so Ruth, I think that one of the, you just outlined what you're looking for in a program, right? You're looking for a program that centers the experience of survivors and in caring dads, that's children and mothers uh, or caregivers that have been abused. And then you're looking for that program to be aware that you need that information to be responsive to that information, to be able to have those complex conversations, to be able to provide feedback around change or lack of change, and then to respond so that it's, it, and you know what, I'm going to take dropout just for a second as an example. Um, there One of the challenges is in our field right now is we're not really, really good at identifying those, you know, like one in five guys right at the front door. We can do a little bit. Like the more mm-hmm. abuse in the past, the more likely they're going to be that way. But but we don't we're not actually really good. Um, and I think there's there's been lots of research because maybe maybe it's the really psych- psychopathic guys. Maybe we can pick them up that way. But that doesn't really even predict all that well. So we almost have to 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 say, okay, change. Here's what we need you to change. Here's how you need to do it. See whether or not it happens. That will help us know who it is we need to do different things with, who it is we need to do more risk management with. But sort of going back to, in terms of that program, so then um, you've got to set up knowing that you're trying to get that as your outcome, that completion is absolutely not your measure of success. And then you have to think about how are we going to communicate that? Is it to the referrer Um, How is that loop going to be closed with the survivors? And different programs run in different ways. So there's not just one answer to that question because there are different kinds of systems in play. Like Mm -hmm. a really tight system is one that's really connected with child protection or child welfare services where the child welfare worker continues to stay involved in the family and there's a really closed loop there. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to have a closed loop. But there are other men and families and children where that loop has to look a little bit different um, because they're involved in a different kind of system. So maybe that loop is directly to the survivor or maybe that loop is to an advocacy agency that's partnering to do this work.
0: You know, it's it's, you know, the systems change. And I know you're very focused on systems and you're not just focused. I think sometimes people think. Oh, we can sort of create a service delivery model, whether it's men's behavior change or caring dads program, and then just sort of
1: drop it, drop and drop
0: people like, you know, drop people into Plug it and, and then wait till the results come back. you know, and you're very systems oriented. And I think about from the point of view of the message we give, save it together with practitioners, which is you you can't outsource accountability or case managing the perpetrator. a program. You have to participate as that case manager. Mm -hmm. You need to set behavioral goals that you think are relevant to the kids. You need to work with the program, share information, you know, and then look at the results. I mean, and we, you know, we have this white paper that talks about, can he admit to the behaviors? Can he acknowledge the harm? Is he changing behaviors? It's a very active process. And it's not, I, I think we don't quite have our systems going in that way. And and Carrie Gads wants to move things in that way. And we want to move things in that way. So I think that's the shared journey we're on.
2: Well, yeah. And when we have a nice, tight, connected to child welfare kind of program, um, when the guy comes into the program, we book the midway meeting with the child protection worker right then, right? Yeah. So it's like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. You have to book right now because we're coming back to you at week 10, at which point, We've probably had more contact with this guy than most other people in the system. Mm -hmm. And we've been really looking to understand what the patterns of of harm are. And let's make sure that what we're going to work on next, because after week 10 in Caring Dads, we're really focused on, this is the behavior change you're you're working on. This is how you're going to monitor it every week. This is how you're going to be accountable to the program. But before we do that, we want to make sure that our view of what needs to change and the referrers' view, uh, or the who is also often speaking for the partners' view about what needs to change, that those are aligned, so that we're not working at cross purposes.
0: And 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 Ruth, brother's up in the pre-interview. This when that's not connected up, then perpetrators manipulate that oh, gap yeah, in they communication.
1: Do. Oh yeah, they, they do. go Absolutely.
0: back. I mean, it's my favorite one to come up recently in the context of family law court and conversations The 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 case managers were talking about, sort of. The perpetrator they refer to the program, the you know, men's behavior change program. It comes back. They don't. I'm. I'm not appropriate for the program. I'm not qualified. They. They didn't think I needed. The, the best statement is they didn't think I needed the program would be the favorite <laughs> one, right? Because right. it implies right. I have no problem. Yeah. When almost always the conversation is much more. You know, but the answer You'd, is actually not that at all. And,
1: and unfortunately, a lot of entry into behavior change programs are predicated. By physical violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Men can't access these programs without a mandate from you know from their, you know, violent incident that's now moving through the 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 legal system. And so we've got some fundamental barriers to people really seeing things like coercive control, which is a you know increases the danger. Uh, of of kids and of adult survivors, so there's a tremendous amount of gap in mm-hmm. the way that we're we're doing these programs and the way that we're pushing people who need these tools and resources into those programs. And we've leaned really heavily on saying you must enter into the behavior change reality via a violent incident towards your family. So we wait until violence is the, is the embedded reality in the family. And, and that is, that's just really poor, poor industry. like the industry needs to change that practice and those attitudes. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a change in our view of what's dangerous for families and for kids. And it needs to shift so that we have more access to these programs without those mandates.
2: Absolutely. It's also a little bit about hope, right? It's about hope that having these conversations can be useful and meaningful, and also kind of some belief that people will take advantage of it. So the other kind of barrier, and and I also live in a context where, you know, to get to somebody who knows, to get help for abusive behavior, and, and when I say that, it's to get to somebody who knows how to have these conversations, who knows how to map out patterns, who knows how to set expectations, you know, one of the only ways to get there is through police, right? And right. that's and that's right. crazy. Right.
1: Well, lots but, of populations will not report, and they have a good reason right. to not report based yeah. on the way the system has interfaced with them. So it creates a fundamental resistance to engaging with people who are perpetrating course of control and and, and abuse. And we really need to look at how we've created that resistance and so we've created those impediments.
0: So we've been talking a lot. You know, Katrina, about men's behavior change programs yeah. and change and and possibility and hope. Can you, you know, for people who are not familiar with caring dads, because caring dads, I don't even know if you would put in the men's behavior change bucket. You know, when I think of men's behavior change, I think about you know a, a, a you know a course that often centers you know patterns of control and physical violence, but really primarily looking at the lens of of, of the behavior targeted to the other adults. Mm-hmm. You know, and often doesn't have a strong component around fatherhood, you know, may not have the components we're talking about, about partner contact or centering the safety of the kids. So can you draw out some of the distinctions around the caring dads program and kind of a Uh standard, or as they say in the UK, a bog standard, I would just, you know, talking to Anna about that, the bog standard men's behavior change, program. I'm going to keep using that and throwing that into (laughs) my my conversations. Uh, Anyway, bog standard men's behavior change program.
2: Well, and I like that you said that because one of the, I think one of the challenges is that men's behavior change programs, there isn't, there's many different men's behavior change Mm -hmm. programs. And there's many things happening in many different places, some of which are more, um, uh, some of which are stronger and more accountable than others. So I think I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, in terms of the difference between caring dads, David, one of them is absolutely yes, is, um, uh, that's centering on what does it mean to be a safe and accountable father, um, mm-hmm. back to that message that I know that you send as well as we do, that you can't be a good dad and an abusive partner. Like it's, it's just not possible that, that behaving abusively towards caregivers is abuse towards the child. So that's part of it. Um. Another part of Caring Dads that makes it a little bit different um, is the way. Um, so, let me just talk a little bit about one of the really clear findings from research around engaging with abusive behavior, be it in a men's behavior change program or in a program like Caring Dads, is that you need to start with an approach that's based in responsivity or motivational interviewing. You have to meet people where they're at. And you need to do that because if you don't meet people where they're at, what you end up doing is you don't engage them with the system. And if you don't engage them with the system, then you can't actually work towards change. That links back. I I started at one point to talk about dropout as an example of that lack of accountability. Lots of times, you know, at least when I started where I was, if a man was referred to a men's behavior change program um, and then dropped out, the program was done with him. And often mm-hmm. partner contact was done as well. Was That was done as well. But the thing is that dropout is one of our better indicators of risk for recidivism. Mm-hmm. So in fact, if somebody drops out, you should be leaning in, not leaning out. So Caring Dads really takes that view around, we need to get men into the program. We're really good at it. We develop those skills. The first few sessions are all about engagement. And then when we can't engage, we can provide feedback Back to say, listen, we're really concerned. Here's what we know about dropout and risk for dropout. And we are good at this and we can't get him. So what is the system going to do next? I think um, the other thing, the other couple things that that might make hearing dads a bit different. Uh, we integrate individual sessions, um, a, a few individual sessions into the program along with group-based sessions. And, and we do that because um, of what the research is saying. So the research has shown that we're better off trying to change abusive behavior in groups as opposed to an individual. So if you could only do a group or individual, do group. But that if you can do some individual sessions and can do this integration of both, you get the best um, outcomes. So Caring Dads has a, an individual meeting at the beginning, but we have individual meetings at the middle where we really... Focus on what's going to change. And we loop around, as I said, to the referrer, so that can we we can really work on that goal with the guy in the program. Um, I, I think we do spend more time at caring dads on, on parenting, but I wouldn't call it a parenting program either. And I wouldn't call it a parenting program because, you know, lots of times when we think about parenting programs, we think about what kinds of strategies can parents use to get their kids to do something differently and that is not what we ever talk about in caring dads what we talk about in caring dads is what do you need to do to become a safe father for your children which means also a safe person in terms of the relationship with kids moms and mm-hmm. if i can if i can just break that down just one more bit it's because that foundation That foundation, which is, I am somebody that you can turn to as your father that is safe, that will respect your rights, that will respect the rights and safety of people around you. That foundation has to be solid. And that's usually what we're working on. So it's about how can you as a father be safe and be child-centered, i.e. really think about what your children need. That's what we focus on, not about how to get your kids to do something different.
0: I You know, I, I, for, again for listeners, I want to summarize, and, and, and you know, Katrina, for you to tell me if I've got it right. You know, when you think about, um, you know, the difference. One of the big differences between the caring dads and, and sort of the box standard men's behavior change program is 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 in that vocal focus that you, that you just talked about, and then also certain these programmatic design things, which might be good if they were in a box standard men's behavior change program as well. Yeah. You know, and but because they're they're really kind of looking at recidivism, leaning in, you know, managing safety throughout the, the life cycle, not just as end around the program, contact with partners. So I just want to kind of really highlight that right. those are great program elements for any kind of behavior change program in my experience. But the yeah. last point that you said, um, you know, I think is so important because I think you're right. If anybody's using, you know, or thinks carrying data is a standard Parenting program where you know you know learn to manage this kind of stage of development, or you know, sort of this skill to kind of get your kid to do. Because you're right, because so much of that is is how do I control my child and 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 get them to do certain things. You're really saying, caring dads, tell me if I've got this right, is emphasizing that what we know about that connectivity and the quality of parenting. And I remember the early fatherhood research, you yeah. know, was about ticking off amount of time dads spent with yeah. kids right and yeah. and they were the the better quality dads at that point the, the good dads for the kid dads were spending more time but as the research evolved and I'm sure you can comment on this what became clear is time wasn't the thing quality no. of parenting was the thing I just yeah. think that's <laughs> you know, funny you know, but it was <laughs> from my
1: perspective because I spent a lot of time with my dad but he didn't tell me he was my dad so he wasn't a good parent because he, he was around He me. was
0: around, right. He was,
1: he, that's not the right. measure of they, good that's parenting right. your, for men. With your
0: what dad, you, he would have, if somebody measured, it would have be, he spent I, spent, I spent a lot of time around my daughter, she, but she doesn't know I'm.
1: Never measure women off that standard. Yes, yeah, she's a good mom because she's constantly around the kids. Yeah. She may be lying on the couch and not engaging them the whole day or screaming at them, but she's a good parent because she's just around them physically. She's Come on, people.
0: <laughs> so, it, so anyway, can you speak to that a little bit? Because you know, the tie into the research and the the, the yeah. sense of sort of that what you're going for is that emotional connection, that quality, you're including that as it relates to you can't have that. I mean, I, I'm thinking about Kathy Humphrey's research, you know, you're um, the, the um, you know, when we know this one place, but I'm thinking about her research, your behavior as consequences was the article interviewing young people about the views yes. of their violent dads, right? And the yep. kids were so clear, you know, which was, you can't be emotionally connected to me, basically, if you're treating my mom poorly. And yeah. so can you speak to that, the centering that in caring dads? So I have that right? It's sort of that. Social, yes. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, so I, I do, I do part, like part of my world is caring dads, but a large part of my work is trying to do a better job at understanding what are those really important things around the relationship between fathers and children and families that make the most difference to kids. And because we may not be able to just take the research from moms and, and say, well, this is true for fathers as well. And we certainly can't say just time with is what we lo- we need to look at. So, um, yeah, so a lot of it is about thinking about that. And um, p- partly, Ruth, what you're saying, kids often say, you know, my father doesn't see me, right? They don't see who I am. And so part of it is about how do we help fathers understand and know who their children are from their children's perspective, right? Can they, what do their children like? What are they worried about? A really, really important question for, for caring dads, dads is what do your children love about their mom, right? How do you support your children's relationship with your mom? And I'm saying that about mom, because, you know, one of the things that dads And parenting researchers, I would say, really like to do is they like to immediately separate father-child relationships from father-mother relationships. And we, in Caring Dads, that's the other thing that's very different is we never undo that. We make it all the way through. You can't talk about fathering without talking about how you see kids' relationship with their moms, like see being, recognize, appreciate, reflect. Value support just as much as you see kids in terms of their relationship with you. I, I think
1: it's funny because you know I I I appreciate being seen as a mom, you know, for the efforts that I take to nurture and, and care for, for children. That's the expectation that's put on me. Um, but I think that if you were to Google male parental developments, you would find very little information because we have assumed and in the separating of, of of the two parental roles, um, what I see as leaning really heavily extreme to one side, that women are the nurturers, that women are responsible for child well-being and safety, and that we must assume that men's only role is to provide financial security. Um, maybe not to me, violent, or to be violent in specific situations which give specific outcomes and make children better citizens and enculturate uh-huh. them into being, you know, and 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 I think that a lot of people have missed that men's roles as parents has been shaped out of a lot of assumptions and not a lot of actual. Um, diving down into the the roles and behaviors and impact of men as fathers and parents and partners and human beings
2: uh-huh. and
1: that we are just really collectively unwilling to see men as self-responsible human beings who are also who are also responsible for the care, well-being and nurturance of kids. Uh-huh. We have this impediment and a lot of people will hear all of this, but emotionally land in a place where they simply don't believe that men are capable of being nurturing, caring parents, and that it's not their responsibility. And that's a societal problem. And that is being given to abusive men as a huge tool for them to be able to avoid emotionally Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and practically their own accountability.
2: Well, and you know what? We could have a really large conversation about this for yeah. sure. <laughs> yes, we I would. I'm going to dial it just down a little bit. <laughs> sorry, I always go big. Yeah. Always it is.
1: It, I'm like <laughs> I. I really want people to feel the places where we're not asking these really important questions of how we perceive men as parents ourselves as professionals, mm-hmm. and
2: and so yeah, it's big. Well, sorry, <laughs> it is. But and and where I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna really join with you on that <clears throat> is. Like, how did we come to have such low expectations of men? Honestly, yes, Let's let's
1: let's. And do what's, men what's feel great good about Do no. men feel good
2: about those low expect? Like, do you feel good about
1: that low expectation? Does you, you feel me. good about you? You're looking
0: at me as the as the as the token male, yes, right I, <laughs> I I don't, but I've committed my life to changing that and, right. and <laughs> know, looking <laughs> at that. But I I think, Katrina, yeah, go ahead. I'm curious about what you're, you know what you're, you your you're joining with looks like around this.
2: Well, so I, I I I'm joining with you, Ruth, in terms of yes, we need to have those higher expectations, and I'm always kind of from the child's eye, what's going to make the most difference, and from the research that we've done, the the things that are going to make the most difference that I can see are a reduction in that hostile anger reactivity responsivity. i'm going to use power when things aren't going my own way right mm-hmm, so
1: mm-hmm.
2: um so having to walk on eggshells around somebody and being worried about how they're going to react and just that that is a really important thing for thinking about kids outcomes disrespectful abusive treatment of kids moms is absolutely something that we're focusing a lot on um, and then the third thing is really trying to build that positive sort of mm-hmm. sense of connection. But if i was so if I had a guy in the group, those are the the things there of course, everybody has individual goals and things that have to change, but often they fall into the realm of, you know, stop treating your partner this way, <laughs> um, right? Stop being abusive. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. usually a physical abuse, it's usually those coercive controlling disrespectful, like behaviors that harm the kids. It is stop um behave, like you need to find a way to meet um people in a way that is not hostile and scary. Mm-hmm. Um and then the third thing is around kind of responsibility for connecting. So I'm going to take some responsibility for being able to connect, available to connect with kids. Mm -hmm.
0: um yeah and that's really clear and wonderful and and we're going to be start moving to wrapping up in in a few minutes and i and
1: this conversation could keep going going going, i
0: I, i i think about just to kind of just add my two cents about this i'm thinking about a colleague of mine who a friend of mine from 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 school years ago who was a filmmaker and you know he was he he was filming on religion and he said if i followed you around with a camera for a day how would I see your religious values played on your behaviors? Right. And I kind of stole that. And I used to, when I did men's behavior change programs, I said, if I followed you around with a camera, what would I see you doing that demonstrated to your kids that yeah. you respect their mom? You know, yeah. and I think I think so much, and the literature has failed on this. I mean, I'm going to be make a broad statement. The literature has failed so much on this because you see all these studies about the role of mom's mental health on kids' mental health in domestic violence circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the the literature, you know, this does a poor job saying, wait a second, both these people are being impacted by the same person. So you're just looking at how mom's mental health is moderating the kids, you know, mental health in the context of domestic Mm -hmm. violence. You're actually not bringing in the context in, which is the perpetrator's behavior and their treatment of both and their attack on the relationship because Mm -hmm. the mom may be depressed because he's put himself between her and the kid. I mean, there's, we know all the scenarios, Right. But it's it's sort of I love, you know, love that and I and 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 I think this can help to bring us into your message for practitioners. For me, I, I hope practitioners are taking away that understanding that lens that caring dads brings to this problem, which is you can't silo the treatment of violent fathers to mothers from the relationship with the kids. And you have to focus on how they support or don't support the strength of that relationship between the, the other care, the the other caregiver and
1: the full family function.
0: That's right. The whole, yeah. the whole... The
1: way the family's functioning, you There's... know, are they, are they stealing that energy? You know, are they, are they robbing their children of, potential are they yeah. damaging their children's physical well-being are they impeding their education are they causing disabilities physical and emotional and and, and intellectual disabilities in their own kids and how do we state that that is a responsible parent if well, that's what they're doing?
0: And, and, and I think it's, you know, it's in the concrete examples. And then what, Katrina, I want to kind of go to you to let you kind of summarize some stuff for us or give messages. I, I think you're making me think about, Ruth, the example, very concrete years ago that heard through social workers about a dad who would be out of the home during the day working. So here's somebody who's doing the the breadwinner role. But he would leave the mom a schedule at 15 minute intervals about how she was supposed to parent and act in the household while he was gone. And the kids made it clear that he punished her if she didn't do it. Right. So he's surveilling her, you know, in, in, in whatever way he probably questioned the kids. He's putting her on the spot. But imagine leaving, you know, controlling remotely among people that if you don't have this view, how how this can be controlling remotely through these are my demands, these are my expectations. I don't care what your the kids need, what you need.
1: This and is, I'm the arbitrator is, of this, I'm
0: the arbiter good, in advance of <laughs> what good parenting is. And so how fundamentally that's an attack on her as a person, it's attack uh-huh. on the kids' needs, and it's attack on the parent-child relationship. Because now she's not thinking about what the kids need, she's thinking about what um what what he needs and how to protect herself and the kids from the extremity of his, his behavior. So I think that's, you know, I want to kind of leave that as a, you know, kind of way to kind of ask you to give us, what do you want? You know, so much more like Ruth says, we can talk about the messages we can, we can um, that you want to give to professionals. You want them to take away from this.
2: Yeah. So I think I have a really like my, my, my message for professionals is that if you, Want to center child safety, right? If child safety and well being is what you're aiming for, and from child protection workers, that's where they're going, right? That's what their aim is. You just can't do that if you're not engaged with the abusive parent and in not engaged in setting and monitoring and making change in abusive behavior. It's just not possible. It is not an afterthought. It can't be the second third or fourth thing that you're thinking about. So that's my message for practitioners.
0: And and what is, you know, for we have a survivor audience as well, what are your messages for, or what would be your message for uh um a survivor who's a mom who's yeah. whether in family court or, you know, in another environment is got a partner who's chosen violence, has chosen to undermine her relationship with her kids. You know what's what for you? We haven't spent a lot about messaging this for survivors and what your work means for survivors. But what's your what's your what's your takeaway on that?
2: Well, I think that Ruth has just been so articulate about that. My message for survivors is like continue to demand more, right? Continue to speak up and demand more, and say that this, you know, I, I you know, it's reasonable for me to expect the system to respond in a way that centers my safety and the safety of my children. And um, that, that shouldn't then fall right back on me. It should actually be addressing the harm that I'm experiencing. So um, yeah. continue to expect, um, even though, even though I know the system fails, um, I think continue to expect and to ask and demand the system to do that.
0: Expect, expect the system to to keep it gaze on him and 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 as a father
1: and you know i would i would really you know it's it's not survivors job but 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 talking about how when survivors engage with professionals that if if they repeat over and over again i want you to hold him behaviorally accountable because my family is unsafe really you know survivors can use safe and together the model you know, mapping uh, to empower themselves to have that communication with professionals. Um, and so I'm just going to say, you know, letting, sur- empowering survivors to communicate their needs for safety around behavior change is, is really important. And I'm just so happy that you are pulling that into the reality and you're, you're having them articulate that. So, yeah.
0: And, and, and since we, we talked about the beginning, it, know, for this particular show, is there a message you've got for any fathers out there who may be wrestling with this issue um, themselves?
2: You know, one of the things that we didn't talk a lot about was, you know, the other reason to do Caring Dads is actually to provide an opportunity to change, right? And, And going back to that, the statement that I made earlier around, you know, I haven't met, like I haven't met very many men in my career who didn't want things to be better. And, you know, one of the things that's tough um, when you start caring dads is to walk into a room with a group of people who have caused enormous amounts of harm in their family, but who at the same time feel like the thing that they're most proud of is being able to be a father. And Mm -hmm. holding those two things in your head is challenging as Mm -hmm. somebody who's providing intervention, but critical. And so how do you then like recognizing for dads, you know, it's worthwhile to do this work. I think men are often scared to have these conversations. Um, But, you know, many people at some level understand that this is not the kind of relationship they want to have with their kids. There is a way to change that. And and I guess my message for fathers is one of, uh, I guess, of hope, right? Mm -hmm. If you reach out um, if you can find somebody to have these conversations with you, um, you can actually have better relationships with right. your partners and with your children, with your family, whether or not you're separated or not. Right. Um, because these patterns are just as important, in fact, more important when when families are separated as they are when they're together. So yeah. um, it's a message of, you know, it's worthwhile to do this work. It will pay off if you're, in terms of, Working with and having relationships, you know. Sometimes we say to dads, you know, look five years or ten years down the road, what Mm -hmm. kind of relationship do you want to have with this person that you've brought into the world or that you have contributed to 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 caring for? I'm very grateful to you for
1: bringing these tools and skills to people um, because it's it's what survivors are asking for, and especially child survivors. So thank you, thank you, Doctor Scott.
0: Yeah, thank you, Katrina, for joining us. And and if um, you know, we hope to have you back in the future because there's so much ground. We could talk more about your research and other things that you're doing with family court. So I I know we'll have you back. So you've been listening to this episode of partnering with a survivor. And we've been interviewing Dr. Katrina Scott from Caring Dads. You can access their information from caringdads.org. You know, so check out what's available in your area if you're a professional, you know, and if you're 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 uh, um a uh, person who might need help that might be available to you as well,
1: and you can check out our resources on and dot com, and you can do our online trainings, including working with men as parents and partnering with survivors, on academy dot com. Okay, and we're out.
0: And we're out.